0: I'm a great fan of uh, The Gift by Lewis Hyde. And in that wonderful, enchanting, not known in the book, he tells us that, in fact, the greatest gift is to be thankful. And, uh, and it's impossible to say how thankful I am to be here with you and to the organizers, to the Ibn Arabi Society, and to all the people who made this such so far such a beautiful, comfortable, and uh, illumining uh, event. And it's uh, more than a pleasure. Uh, and uh, and I am uh, basking in the feeling of gratitude that it has given me. And it's a pure joy, which, of course, is the way you translate bashar. Uh, and uh, uh, this will... Uh, I hope be kept in mind while talking about this topic Um, because the meaning (coughs) of this word may be seen to derive directly from the story of Joseph. And a particular character in that story who is known as the bearer of glad tidings, or the bashir, from which the word bashar comes. And we'll look a little bit more on the nature of those glad tidings. I never know whether glad tidings is a plural or a singular, by the way. So uh, the, the glad tidings, uh, that, that is uh, in some ways the, the climax of the story of Joseph in the Quran. And uh, the way in which the notion of uh, Bashara and uh, Bashir is central to the Quranic worldview, the Qur'anic ethos, which of course is intimately connected with the Islamic worldview, needless to say, and then what becomes later talked about amongst uh, one of the most brilliant Islamists of uh, the 20th century, Marshall Hodgson, as the Islamic world, which is a world that has been tinged deeply by the orientations and the worldview of Islam. Uh, something uh, which, what we refer to as the West, has been a little bit slow in acknowledging the great contribution of toward its own development and uh, efflorescence. And amongst the many gifts of Islamic of Islamic heritage, which is still going on and being produced to the world and world culture and world civilization, is in fact the centerpiece of this conference, mainly in that. Uh, he is a child and son and uh, uh, of, of Islamic culture, and in him we can see a confluence of of, in fact, all of the intellectual and spiritual traditions of the first 600 years of Islam coming to a, a magnificent uh, luminous Ocean, uh, without shore, as we all know, and uh, uh, he is he is frequently uh, viewed as a great mystic who is accidentally part of the Islamic uh, 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 history and culture. But this is a great error, and uh, he would he would probably spin in his grave to hear him be characterized as such, because uh, it is. It is not possible to conceive of Ibn Arabi's worldview and great penetrating vision into how to look at the world without Islam. It is simply unthinkable. There might have been a great spiritual genius in the 13th century, but it wouldn't have been the Musa, right? and it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have, it wouldn't have all of these. Well, it may have that, but what we what we do know is that Ibn Arabi definitely had this vision, and the vision is umbilically connected to Islam, to the Quran, as Professor Morris said so eloquently last night. We must, we must pay deep attention to this, and I'd like to begin uh, the talk, which is called <coughs> In the Spirit of the theme of this conference, response and responsibility. Uh, uh, The talk is called Ibn Arabi's Joseph and uh, imagination as holy communion. I take it for granted that we all recognize and accept that holy communion of some kind or another is a responsibility of the human species. And uh, if not, you can put that in parentheses after the title. That uh, holy communion which is a responsibility. And uh, I'd like to, uh, I'll tell you what, what I think this means before I begin the talk, so it can be with you while I'm talking about it. Uh, in the uh, chapter on Joseph, in the Bezels of Wisdom of Ibn Arabi, uh, which, which is char- characterized by luminosity in the title. As you know, the titles of the vessels of wisdom have a particular meaning. Uh, they all rhyme, and they all sort of point to the core heart of what, what the particular chapter is about. This chapter is about light and imagination. And the basic presupposition, uh, and forgive me if I tell you things you already know, but the basic presupposition is that the universe is and the cosmos, and the creation, is, in fact, the spiritual experience of God. And this spiritual experience is uh, talked about more precisely by uh, petitioning the idea of imagination, that the world is imagined by God. And part of that imagination includes another distinctive Islamic category, one that had not been given such a uh, freestanding position in the lexicon of religious studies until Islam, and it was mentioned, of course. But Islam has made in the, Quran the notion of humanity a serious topic of discussion. And within that imagined cosmos, that is the result of God's spiritual experience, Come humanity who are also endowed with imaginations. So being in the world and deploying one's imagination is in fact a gesture of holy communion. Because the substance of the imagination uh, is, from what we gather in, in Araby's discussion, the same. It is, it is uh, fed by Uh, luminosity, sometimes visible, sometimes not, and this divine energy, which is most reasonably talked about in the instance of imagination, (coughs) with regard to Joseph, which of course is the Joseph of the twelfth surah of the Quran, this imagination is most dramatically employed in his uh, prophetic ability, and he is a prophet his prophetic ability to interpret symbols, and to interpret, uh, and to derive from symbols prophetic meaning, the meaning of reality, and in the particular instance the meaning of the pharaoh's dream, of course, which which he explains to him by taking the images of the dream and applying his prophetic Imagination, which is of the same species we assume as the divine imagination, and telling the Pharaoh what the future will be. Thereby, uh, being recognized as a remarkable man, even if he is a Hebrew slave, and uh, given an important position in society from which his prophethood can also radiate until ultimately... the the end of the story uh, vindicates the earlier dream of the prophet uh, Joseph and his family come to join him in Egypt and the entire line Abrahamic line of prophecy is preserved and saved and uh, kept in Egypt for safekeeping until uh, later developments in the story of of Israel but this this is the way Islam sees the story of Joseph Uh, there are other very important details as well which I hope we talk about in the breakout section, uh, uh, which is going to focus on this uh, uh, the beauty of Joseph, and the experience of knowledge, and the transmitter of this knowledge, which of course is the shirt of Joseph, the, pemis, the from which we get our word, chemise, but the, pemis, the the shirt which occurs in the 12th sort of very important terms of the story. So. But Joseph, as one of the prophets, talked about in the bezels of wisdom, is, is unique. And the bezels of wisdom is conceived, the, the compelling, controlling metaphor of the bezels of wisdom is something to repeat if you're already familiar with it, because it helps to highlight what is Islamic about Ibn Adam. Uh, the first thing you do when you encounter this title is look up what bezel means, right? That's not a word that we so, vessel is the setting for a gemstone in a, in a ring. And I chose the title of this book, uh, or received it from the prophet, as he says in the beginning, uh, because he wanted to communicate the idea that uh, with the transmission of wisdom and revelation and knowledge, there are there are two elements. There's the knowledge, and then there's the vessel for the knowledge. And by and in, the, in this metaphor, the prophets are called the settings of the wisdom. They're not called the wisdom. They're called the, the wisdom is the gem. It um, could be of any color. You know, uh, and the bezel is what receives the wisdom. But what is distinctive about the bezel and the gem, particularly at this time in the history of jewelry, making, <laughs> is that the, it was not possible to cut the gem as finely as we can today. So the bezels had to be had to be molded to shape the wisdom. And uh, so what he's trying to tell us with this metaphor is that a prophet at a given time and a given place had a particular noetic or spiritual shape which would perfectly... Correspond to the wisdom that was bestowed upon them in color, in facets, and so on. So each of, from Adam until Muhammad, each of these bezels of wisdom carry a jewel that is perfectly suited to their time and place. It's a marvelous, marvelous metaphor, and it is utterly Islamic. Why? Because Islam is, along with the elevation of the notion of humanity to religious value and civilization to religious value, it also acknowledges a long history of prophet, right? Which is uh, unique in, in uh, religious literature. So it is, without this, the fasus al hikam would not have been composed that it just simply could not have been conceived. So, the interior message of this metaphor is, of course, that what causes the wisdom which is represented by this gemstone to be received is the light that comes through it. And behold, the light is all the same. The light is is refracted through the prismatic uh, shape and nature of the gem, but but the beautiful uh, awakening is that it is all the same, from Adam to Mahana. And what causes it to be different? The different shape of the bezel which is give, given this perfectly suited gem okay. to right. in. So, Joseph. Joseph is, uh, in, in the Qur'an, is uh, of particular importance. <coughs> you know, for a long time, uh, Islamists looked at the Qur'an, and based on the number of mentions of various prophets, re- came to the conclusion that uh, that <coughs> the most important prophet for the Islamic notion of religion and, and uh and, uh revelation and prophethood and uh, the role of the prophet was Moses right and and there is a a great deal of truth in this but in the process uh, the activities and the careers of other prophetic types and other prophetic personalities were perhaps lost sight of and I think that uh, Joseph is a case of one of these Was lost sight of. Uh, Though it is true that Moses is mentioned more than any other figure in the Quran, and his life and career and his travail and and, uh, (coughs) uh, ultimate triumph are told with great admiration and respect and love in the Quran. Um, The unique thing about the story of Joseph is that although he's really only seriously mentioned in any great depth in his own surah, surah 12, this surah by itself stands out unique because of its narrative integrity. Unlike any other surah in the Quran, it has what we come to call a beginning, a middle, and an end. And surah 12, coincidentally or not, also happens to come almost in the middle of the Quran, if we, uh, you know, approximately. So what the the story of Joseph, just from the point of view of form, tells us is that here is a decoding of the mission of prophethood, which is impossible to uh, misinterpret. Whereas all the other prophets in the Quran are mentioned. One will be mentioned here in Surah 2, and another in Surah 4, and we have to sort of piece it together, and the exegetes love to do this and produce gazillions and gazillions of words about about this how, what is the career of Shoei, of, 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 uh, what is the career of, of Jesus and so on. With the story of Joseph, it's as if uh, the author of the Quran uh, is saying in case you're having trouble understanding what the prophet does and will, will do and endure, here it is and not only that, it is a laddern good story. <laughs> it is a it is a tremendous story. I mean, there's no story like the story of Joseph. So it is a it is a magnificent jewel of the narrative art thrown in. It's as if you're listening to uh, uh, well, say cut into the middle of Coltrane. On uh, my favorite things, and you don't exactly know what the tune is, but you know he's doing something important. And then all of a sudden he refers to the opening melody, and aha! Here we are. It's, it's all okay. Everyone feels a lot better now. Everyone feels more secure that there's something reasonable going on, something that we can relate to. And furthermore, we can admire even more profoundly the magnificent artistry of what we heretofore consider to be imponderable or impenetrable. The story of Joseph functions this way in the choir. It tells us, don't worry, even if it looks as if everything is discontinuous from the beginning to the end, and which it does. You know, the Quran still has not for this reason and many more taken its rightful place as a monument of world literature, right? Even, even today, right? It, 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 if it appears to not be connected or make sense, do not worry, because we give you the example here of the story of Joseph. So this is what having faith rather than believing means, right? Just this this be, be secure in the fact that we're talking, we're telling you the truth. And as a matter of telling it to you in a very interesting way, which petitions everything that is uh, challenging and noble about being a human being. And back to Joseph, apparently, if we take seriously the story of Joseph, the most noble thing about being a human being is this imagination, mm-hmm. is this ability to transform our world, to see all the wonderful things that imagination can do. It, without imagination, we cannot see the, the light that is possible to envision in the midst of horrible chaos and pain and agony and torture. This is one of its uh, salvific uh, functions. But it also helps us to communicate discursive knowledge and to communicate uh, the, the knowledge of revelation and to understand it and to apply it. It's, the, the ability to interpret depends primarily upon this function of imagination, according to how I'm understanding the chapter of Joseph in uh, the Fusus of Him, the vessels of Wisdom. <clears throat> so, Joseph is important because he represents the truth of visionary experience. I'll just tell you very briefly the story of Joseph in the Quran. So that you have an idea it's not the, it's not the Joseph of Genesis that Ibn Arabi is speaking about, although there's much in common between the Genesis story and the Quranic story. But in the story of Joseph it's uh, it's important to try and communicate, even if you already know, for the purpose of my talk, to, to set the scene. So well, it begins with uh, with uh, Joseph telling his father Jacob his dream about the uh, planets and the sun and the moon bowing down to him. This is a dream he had. He's a very young man. This exegesis said maybe six years old. Uh, and we already know, because everybody in Muhammad's uh, uh, community knew these stories. It wasn't, it wasn't an importation. These were, this was the, you know, this was a, uh, the biblical world, the Abrahamic world, the Semitic world. They may have had very, very traditions about how the story unfolded and some of the details, but they all knew Joseph was Jacob's favorite son. And why? And he had brothers who were uncomfortable with Joseph's position. I mean, people have been telling their kids these stories to try to get them to behave for generations. <laughs> <laughs> so everyone knew these stories and, and all the other stories in the This is what explains sometimes the, what people refer to as the referential character of the Quran. They knew how to speak in those days. They didn't tell you everything. They didn't hit you over the head with every fact. They let you fill in the blank, you know, because you already knew it. And by supplying what the speaker's not telling you, you are participating in the story. It's It's a wonderful, wonderful tradition, which we don't have so much of anymore. So, excuse me. Please don't tell your brother about this dream. Scene shifts. You know the brothers want to take Joseph out to play. <laughs> don't worry, Dad. We'll we'll look after him. <laughs> right? And so there's much protest and uh, there's much uh, uh, nervousness, and they take him out to play, and of course they. They thought they should kill him. They decided not to kill him. They threw him down a well. And uh, eventually a a caravan came along on his way to Egypt. And they sold Joseph to the caravan for a price. And Joseph leaves Canaan now and is on his way to dark old Egypt. And he's going down to Egypt to have his own life work out in a wonderful way, which we'll get to in a second, but in the meantime the brothers go back to Jacob's. Um, there's the shirt of Joseph. The wolf ate. Right. And so Jacob, uh, of course, is utterly desolate. And inconsolable. Maybe this is why the scene shifts immediately because it's so overblown. The love, the, the story of Joseph is really about the love of Jacob for Joseph. Uh, not, in a sense, nothing else. So, but it stays there and then Joseph goes into, uh, we catch up with Joseph, he's in Egypt. He's in the house of the, uh, of the wealthy, well-established official in Egypt. He's been bought as a slave to serve the household and um, uh, the the name of the official is never mentioned but it's Potiphar and uh, uh, and Potiphar's wife whose name is never mentioned but who comes to be known as Zolaitha in the Islamic tradition is overwhelmed by this really fine Hebrew slave. She cannot be herself. She simply cannot. And it becomes a scandal. Everybody in the, in the neighborhood finds out, one way or another, that she's just utterly smitten by desire for him, right? And um, one day, uh, she uh, makes a pass at him, and he is he wants to refuse. And he prays to God, give him strength to refuse, and according to the story, he continues to refuse. And she pursues him and grabs his shirt as he's trying to leave the room from the back and rips the shirt. And then, because she, she was refused, she complains to her husband that Joseph had been improper towards her. And so... His case is investigated and her story is listened to and it's observed that she might have been telling the truth that the shirt had been torn from the front. But because the shirt was torn from the back it's obvious that Joseph was leaving and wanted to be uh, protected from this. In the meantime we the scandal is percolating in this fine Neighborhood in downtown Egypt, and uh, you know, all of, uh, she has her friends over for a kind of a uh, uh, afternoon tea, and they're all whispering. Can you believe it? she of them was he was slave, and you know, she knows what they're talking about. She knows what the scandal is, and she says, "I'll show them." So she has the food brought in, and they're all sitting around, you know, eating grapes and, uh, and oranges and peeling uh, oranges. Joseph. They bring in Joseph, and he comes in, and they oh, nice. look <laughs> they, they cannot believe the beauty of this of this young man. And they all say, Now we understand. <laughs> we, we see what the problem was. <laughs> this doesn't stop, of course, our friend the man from putting Joseph in, pre- in prison, where he languishes for some long time. And he, he, while in prison, it's a very interesting story, he becomes known for his ability to interpret the dreams of the prisoners. And he's, uh, you know, he's obviously become a a much valued uh, friend and advisor. And uh, uh, the scene shifts further. I'm going a little fast because we're running out of time. The scene shifts further comes the pharaoh is having his dreams and none of his none of his scholars or ministers or courtiers are able to penetrate their meaning. and they you know pharaoh tells them the dream about the, the, the seven uh, uh, thin emaciated cows and seven uh, fat ones and so on the response in the Quran is: "This is nonsense. This is absolute nonsense." The Quranic word is "jumble and dream," no meaning, right? No meaning. Well, prophets know that mm-hmm. nothing without meaning, <laughs> right? That's one of their things. <laughs> that everything has a beautiful thing that Jim pointed out is that everything is a messenger, right? This is a beautiful way of looking and. So, uh, by and by, it, uh, the pharaoh gets word that there's somebody in prison who's very good at interpreting dreams. Uh, this was a bit of a cliffhanger, but eventually they find Joseph and bring him to the pharaoh. And he interprets the dream uh, the way we you know it would be seven years of famine, and seven years of wealth. And uh, what you need to do is store up grain and food during the seven years of wealth to prepare for the seven years of famine. And this is wonderful, you know. And Pharaoh gives him, a, establishes him in a, in a position of power, as the Quran says, in the land. Right? And at that point, with the position of power, who comes knocking on his door <laughs> but his brothers? And his brothers come saying, you know, Canaan is possessed. This family. We need help. And so Joseph has a right. And does plays with it a little bit, you know. I mean, after all, mm. and, uh, <laughs> so so uh, so he gives them food, and he uh, uh, tells them that you know they can come back again, but they should bring back uh, their other brother. He says, "I know you've got another brother there." And of course, it was Benjamin, who is Joseph's full brother by the same mother, and both of them together are. Our beloved of Jacob. And they go back, and the story of Joseph is full of doublings. Full of doublings. They go back and once again beg Jacob to let them take Benjamin back to Egypt. And he says, no, I don't think so. Something bad's going to happen. No, no, nothing bad. And he takes him away, and Jacob feels utterly bereft now of his favorite children. And this is when the important scene of the of the weeping of, of Jacob occurs, and it weeps to, to such a, a with such intensity that his tears wash away the sight of his eyes. Yes. He can't see. He loses it. His eyes are wiped with blindness. Out of this separation from from Joseph and also ben, well, up a little bit. What happens is the, the brothers go back and through a number of stratagems discover in fact to their utter amazement and uh, uh, who knows how to characterize the feelings of these brothers that Joseph in fact did not perish as, as, a, as a Hebrew slave in Egypt but he is now the most powerful man in Egypt and they're now asking him for their livelihood, and what does Joseph do, and this is extremely important, Joseph forgets. If Joseph had the wherewithal to, you know, to uh, to, to, to get up, to get even, completely, to, to have them executed that and turn into, you know, uh, donkey food or whatever, <laughs> that, he did not he forgave him and asked him to go back and bring his parents and said and in the meantime the blindness of Jacob would be cured by Joseph giving the shirt to the brothers to take back to Canaan to lay upon the eyes of Jacob so that he would Regaining sight. And the, I think the center of the story is now. They're in Egypt. Their saddlebags are full of grain. They know who Joseph is. Joseph's status as a prophet has been revealed to them. And they're thereby understanding his. Favorite status by Jacob, it all now begins to make sense. They have the grain, they have the shirt. And the, the Quran says in one verse, they separate themselves from Egypt, and at that time in Canaan, Jacob raises up in bed and says, I detect your <laughs> They continue. And in the meantime, while they're continuing toward Jacob's house, the, the household says to Jacob, <coughs> you're losing your mind. This is a, you've, you've lost your mind. And this is a detecting the presence of, of Joseph. As soon as it leaves Egypt, represented by this shirt. It's the most incredible scene in the And it might be they get to, they get to the encampment or the, the pastures of Jacob and the scene is described thus. The shirt is taken by the Bashir and placed upon the eyes of Jacob and he begins his son. So there's the, com- but see the interesting thing is Bashir means bearer of good news, Jacob already knew because of his prophetic status and his, his love for, for Joseph. So it is the story is all about this revelational power of the reunion after separation and the love of Jacob for Joseph. His eyesight is restored. The family is brought to Egypt. They live in luxury and comfort and in all the days of their life. And the story, at this point, other things will happen later for the children of Israel, but at this point, it's as if we're all going to live happily ever after. And all of the suffering, and travail, and imprisonment, and jealousy, and pain, and agony, has been brought to a perfect symmetrical end. The beginning is like the end. And at the end of the story, there's a kind of an editorial comment saying that this is is the nature of prophecy this is the way the prophets in the past have, have been treated and have, 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 have existed. And this, we tell you, so that you will uh, understand the way of, of God. And it is a way of understanding the way of God, and in an Islamic context, a way of understanding the role of Muhammad. Because uh, there's some very interesting work done on Joseph, which demonstrates that Muhammad and Joseph are, in fact, mirror images of each other in the telling. Uh, uh, the technical term is typological figuration, biblical studies. What happens here is a perfect example of this, this literary event in which the <coughs> earlier model becomes remilified at a later time. It's the connection between the New Testament and the Old Testament down to the very molecular structure of the scripture. That this typological figuration is a, a uniting energy that goes back and forth. That the Lamb of God is Jesus, and that, uh, that the suffering servant is Jesus, and uh, that the history of Israel is replayed again and somehow in the history of the Christian community and the preaching of Jesus. And interestingly <coughs> enough, who was the name of Jesus' father? Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so these typological energies and, and reverberations and dualities are very important and extremely important in the lives of the prophets of, of the Islamic uh, uh, message. So the story has a beginning, middle, and end. It gives us a, a, the reassurance that That the prophet does have a role as the leader of a community; that he has a what we, the uninitiated, would refer to as a political role. Although in the deeper structure of the Islamic uh, notion of prophetology, there's it's 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 all spirit, even if it appears to be political. And that the hallmark of the prophetic office is this ability to interpret meaning out of apparent chaos, which is very akin to what confronted the Prophet in his Meccan experience. The chaos of gods, a chaos of religions, a chaos of approaches. And the revelation that he was given gave it a kind of seamless homogeneity. It was through the power of this vision that the Islamic ethos was born and gave rise to um, a particular take on cosmopolitanism and pluralism that the world indeed does owe to the, what Oddison called, the venture of Islam. And uh, I think that's probably enough. So thank you very much.